marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. Marriage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream. Then love, true love, so treasure your wife. Skip to the end. Have you the wind? Under you, Princess Bahwa. Man and wife, say man and wife. Man and wife. For those of you who don't get the joke, we all watched that as a community last Sunday night um, because it's a moral imperative. What is that up to? Um, what is that iconic scene from almost 35 years ago? It's a parody. It's a, it's a parody of a wedding service, which at the same time is, is making a mockery of the marriage that's about to occur, right? The, uh, it's a sham. Uh, this had a, a particular uh, intention in mind. The, the priest is clearly um, oblivious <laughs> to what's going on, and uh, Prince Humperdinck, uh, you know, as he will earlier say, I, I have a 500th anniversary to arrange, a wedding to plan, a wife to kill, and Gilder to frame for it. I'm swamped, right? So his a whole idea of, of what he's about to enter into in marriage there is a mockery. It is a mockery. And we laugh. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk about another uh, mockery of marriage, uh, but it's the kind in which nobody laughs. And, and that mockery is called adultery. And as I kind of warned everybody at the top of the service, um, it's one of the commandments. I can't leave it out. And we probably shouldn't, uh, given where we are and given how we feel and given the way things are. But I, I kind of want to back up a little bit and just before we you know, plow headlong into talking about adultery, um, I want to set it in context. And here's the context. There's a, a quote that some people think C.S. Lewis said or G.K. Chesterton said, which is actually written by... Um, a Scotsman, an author by the name of Bruce Marshall. And he wrote a book back in the 20s called The World, the Flesh, and Father Smith. So by that title, you can probably imagine the subject matter of his, of his book. But um, in that book, it's one of many books about Father Smith. Father Smith encounters an author, a woman, who, um, you know, kind of gives off the seductress kind of vibe. And, and she strikes up a conversation with the priest thinking, oh, no, this will be fun, right? And, and she says to him, um, tell me, do you get much response to the old, old story these days? All that poppycock about baptism and purity and the virgin birth. You, you know it's all against modern science and obstetrics, right? How do you get along without us? Since religion is just a substitute for you know what. To which Father Brown Father Smith replies, I, I still prefer to believe that you know what is a substitute for religion. And here's the quote. And that the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. Which is a flourishing way of saying that <clears throat> there is a kind of desire that one is seeking through what we might call an illicit form of intimacy that is its own version of trying to find that place of knowledge and vulnerability that no human can offer. That there is in that move by man and woman alike the desire to find a place of understanding and of appreciation 
and vulnerability that has all the similar contours of trying to know the Lord who knows us in that way. That's a broader context. That's a broader way of thinking about where we're going to go today. We're not just talking about acts. We're talking about the way we think of our bodies and at the same time thinking about the Lord who is the one who made the body. That's why we started as we did in Psalm 139. What we're going to do is consider something very simple. It's my MO to kind of aim for the clever and come up with rhyming words and use a little alliteration to talk about you know, important things. I'm going to kind of drop that effort today, and I'm just going to try to play it straight with everybody. I want to talk about something that's simple, namely, what is the simple command that we're hearing in the seventh commandment? And then what are the, the simple truths that kind of lay behind it that maybe are sort of the understructure for thinking about the seventh commandment? And then finally, what are the, the simple implications that follow from it? We are in this series on the Ten Commandments because we think there is wisdom there for us. And we're in that part of the stretch of the, of the Ten Commandments in which it's pretty much a no, 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 in which we might think that God is just out to be a killjoy. But look, um, kids, if you ever go to the Grand Canyon and, and you're leaning too far over the rail and mom says, nah, right? If you look back at them and go, don't be so dreary, right? There are rails there for a reason. It's to protect and preserve your life. It's not just a no. And before we're done, we're going to talk about the implicit yes that is part and parcel of this no. So we're going to look at the simple commandment, the simple truths behind it, and the simple implications that follow from it. And we hope to do that with gentleness and respect wherever we can. So if you're able, I wonder if you might stand. We'll start in Deuteronomy 5, and then we'll hop over to Jesus' little commentary on Deuteronomy 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Deuteronomy 5, uh, verse 18. Don't blink. And you shall not commit adultery. Check. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. You've heard that it was said, and you just did, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. That's the straightforward word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Right. Okay. Um, tell you what, I should probably pray. Uh, Father, help us to think well about something so central and fundamental, um, but not to get in the ditch of, uh, of not being courageous, but also in the ditch of uh, not hearing about the grace that accompanies your wisdom. So we ask all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the seventh commandment. Lo ti ahfi. You shall not commit adultery. And this commandment sort of is a departure from the way some of the other commandments are couched. When we talked about the Sabbath, he goes on this long elaboration. Did you know that you were once, you know, slaves in the world, but the Lord has intervened with his strong and mighty hand to free you? And, and then he talks about honor your father and your mother, because if you obey them, then you will live long in the land. There's this little commentary that kind of sets it up and tries to explain it. But on this one, do not commit adultery. Full stop. That's it. It's all you get. 
I'm sorry. There's no qualification. And, and maybe that's because uh, it would be whoever would hear it would go, uh, duh, yeah, there are consequences of doing that. There, are, there is pain to bear. Um, there is damage that is done when there goes that. And so if I might just take that very straightforward, unadorned, unqualified command and, and couch it in ways that would apply to everybody in this room, whether you are single or married, whether you uh, have no ever intentions of ever being married, or whether you've been married before and it's like, I'm not doing that again. I, I want to talk to try to everybody in the room. Here's, here's just another way of putting what it means by do not commit adultery. It's this, do not share marital intimacy with anybody that you're not in marital union with. Do not share marital intimacy with anybody that you're not in marital union with. That's it. Now, if you think, gosh, uh, do you have anything else? <laughs> anything with a little bit more flourish? Um, I like metaphors. Why not metaphors? Well, you know, a long while ago, we, when we were preaching through the Proverbs, we, we stopped on Proverbs chapter 5. And there in Proverbs chapter 5, it, it puts it this way. Um, Drink water from your own cistern flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Flourish. Metaphor. Illustration. Hey, this, what you share, what intimacy is, um, not with strangers. Not with strangers. Only those you're in covenant union with. Let me borrow uh, an idea from Frederick Buechner again. I'm going to sprinkle some of his thoughts throughout this sermon. But um, do you remember in physics? Of course you don't. Neither do I. Um, <laughs> maybe your physics professor like, brought a bucket of water, and then he handed it to you, and he said, now, sling it around, right? Like this, like this, right? And the water stays in the bucket. Now, if there had been a trap door in the bottom of the bucket, when you're doing this, where does the water go when you're doing this? Flies everywhere, right? There's this imaginary thing called centrifugal force. Like they told us of this in physics and later you found out it doesn't exist. But centrifugal force is where you, you're propelling it and it flies out there, that centrifugal force. But then there's this other thing called centripetal force. There's, it's pushing back towards the center. Frederick Bigner, and this is way abstract, ready? If your version of intimacy is trying to push away somebody's soul while you're trying to draw in their body, the centrifugal force of their soul pushing outwards, I don't want that, I just want their body, that's an intimacy that's from the devil, he said. The intimacy that is from the Lord is the one that tries to bring both soma, the body, and psyche, the soul, together. That's it. Those two things go together. Let, let not man tear asunder uh, what God brought together. You're a full being. And so when it comes to intimacy, that's how you and I are to think about it. You are to be accountable for the entirety of the person with whom you share that. That's what it means to say no adultery. Now, it's very terse. It's unqualified. Uh, there's nothing else there in, in verse 7 or the seventh commandment. And if you sit there for a moment, you go, wow. Um, didn't we read the Scarlet Letter in high school? Right? And we saw that, you know, that went really well. And look, all the, the community, ooh, right? And like, haven't we moved on from all of that? Why are we so fixated on this? That just seems so old, so quaint, so, here's a word from our day, oppressive. Right? Until it's not. Let me 
Let me unpack what I, what I mean there. So there's this woman. Her name is Bridget Phetasy. And um, she has written for a wide number of publications, which is very ironic given some of the publications she's written for because of the essay that she wrote very last week, which the title I'm not going to quote given the setting that we're in. This is a family show, but I will paraphrase it. The title of her essay, and you can find all of this in the sermon resource doc this week if you want to look that stuff up, but the, the, the title of her essay that I will paraphrase is this, I regret setting the low bar for my body. And this is not a person that is out to do a Bible study for us on the seventh commandment, I assure you. But in the essay that she wrote last week, she was enormously candid about the kinds of encounters, intimate encounters that she has had, such that in that essay, she wrote this. I can only think of a handful I don't regret. The rest I would put in the category of casual, which I would define as either meaningless or mediocre or both. If I get really honest with myself, I'd say most of these usually drunken encounters left me feeling empty and demoralized and worthless. The lie I told myself for decades was, I'm not in pain, I'm empowered. Again, in the essay, she does not say, and now if you'll open your Bibles, let's consider what the Lord has to say. She doesn't go there. She is honest enough to say, though, that there was a set of truths in her mind that she embraced, that she came to discover were deceitful. And she premised her life and her intimate life in that direction. And it turns out she had a conversation with somebody on a podcast last week whose name is Louise Perry, who has actually written a book that drops tomorrow called The Failure of the Sexual Revolution. And an excerpt from that podcast, you hear Louise Perry say this, if you want to say that it's no different from shaking someone's hand and shouldn't have any kind of special status, then you also can't say that there is any special status to all this stuff which we know ruins people's lives. These are her words. She is not on a church staff. She is not advocating for a return to the seventh commandment. Both she and Bridget Phetasy would identify themselves as the, the, the self-styled third-way feminist who would argue that whatever this revolution was, you know who had the most to gain from it? Men. Because then they were less accountable for the impulses that they didn't govern. What seemed to be so liberating turned out to be their own version of a prison. And, and these two women, at least these two women, are representative of a th way of thinking that is acknowledging that maybe some of this wisdom that we thought was so old and quaint has been discarded too haphazardly. Look, I know where I am. I know who I'm among. I, I, and, and there is, there, on one side of the spectrum, there's this thing that you may have heard called purity culture. That in the effort to honor, in some ways, what we're finding in the seventh commandment and what we'll hear from Jesus soon, that, that there was an elaboration on that, that at some point started to make promises that if you, if you kept your promise, everything would be great, which is not a promise anybody can keep. And that if you didn't keep your promise, the only thing you had before you was shame and scorn. That's, that's sort of the, the fallout from, from that attempt to represent that. That's one side of the spectrum. The other one is, as long as you just abide by consent and birth control, everything will be fine. And Bridget Phetasy and Louise Perry are saying, huh, that's all you have? 
It will not serve you. The simple command is arguing for a claim that both Ms. Perry and Ms. Phetasy are implying that there is a special status to this. That there is something involved that all of those things that we click on that um, is all about untoward encounters that lead to all sorts of things that, as Louise Perry says, ruins your life. And, and some might say, look, that's all about consent or about people that are not giving consent. And, and, and that's the issue. Not, not that there's anything special about intimacy. It's all about that there was no consent. Friends, look, if a woman gets her car stolen and a woman gets something stolen from her through an intimate encounter, if you put those in the same category, you can't. You shouldn't. What they're implying about a special status, and I'm going to borrow Ms. Perry's phrase, special status, for the duration of the sermon. They're implying that there is a special status to what we're talking about in the way of intimacy. And what they imply, the seventh commandment claims. What's special about it? The commandment doesn't say so. It has a lot in the background. That's where I want to go now. We've talked about the simple command. Let's talk now about the truths that kind of lie behind it to ground it. And part of that begins with the Old Testament. There are two data points. And none of this will be new unless you've never been here before. And then it's all new. But I just want to give you two data points to start. One just comes from the very beginning. I mean the very beginning, Genesis 1. What does it say? Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What is said of every human is not said of anything else in creation. No bird bears the image of God. No fish bears the image of God. No groundhog bears the image of God. Humanity bears that image. Humanity, therefore, has some kind of special status which accords then with a certain kind of treatment, not only of thinking about your own body as made in the image of God, but anybody else's that is too. Look, I have a 2002 Mercury Mountaineer, and boy, does it look 20 years old. But if you go outside and you see Rick Sorensen's car, or Ed Mathis's car, <laughs> like, what I do to my car, if I did that to theirs, what are you doing, right? They're pieces of art. You, you accord them a different kind of respect, and a different kind of treatment. Now, maybe somebody said I should have fixed it, I should have treated it a long way, a lot, that, my car that way the whole time. I'm saying this. The status that you hold as made in the image of God has everything to do with how you think about yourself and about other bodies. It has a special status. That's why C.S. Lewis says, you have never, ever sat next to a mere mortal. In fact, if you really knew that which you are sitting next to, you would almost be tempted to bow down and worship if you understand the fullness of what you're, what you're next to. And I don't believe that either sometimes. A lot of times. But that's the first data point. The second, it doesn't come very much later in the narrative, but Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The vulnerability, the intimacy was not something that was intimidating. It was lovely. It was wonderful. And what happens in that moment is more than a contractual arrangement between two people. 
I know that you sign a license before you get married at the county courthouse, but if you equate that like signing a lease on a car, you missed it. Something has not connected with you about the nature of the bond that you were forming. And, and Scripture is speaking here of something that is of a special status. This idea of um, clinging to and one fleshness that indicates that what you share with someone else, in that way, you share with no one else. So yes, Louise, there is something of a special status if we're to understand why the seventh commandment is in place. And, and that's why, if, if that is true, if those two data points are true, if those two data points are not true, you know what? You're going to have to come up with your own version about why any kind of governance on the use of your body should be in play. You will only have consent and harm to be your ground for anything that you do. And you can, and lots of people do. But if those two data points are true, if you possess a unique status by the virtue of the fact that you're made in the image of God and, and that which is uh, between a husband and a wife, again, possesses a special status by virtue of this one flesh thing, which is not even really defined very well. It's this comprehensive bond in which you share more than an address. You share something that you can't even quite put your finger on. If that's true, then it, the seventh commandment makes sense. It, it's not just out to kind of, you know, wag your finger at, the people that are not being responsible for their bodies. And if those two data points are true, you know what's also true? Um, what this single guy named Jesus had to say about this text. In his very short commentary, he would say that adultery is only the last domino to fall. It is, not, it is the cause of problems but it is the symptom of something else that has come upstream of that. That adultery is, is careening over the guardrail after a series of wrong turns and misapprehensions of what is true. And therefore, adultery occupies the same space as this thing that Jesus calls lust. Now, lust is a squishy term. What does that mean? Um, let me borrow a line from Friedrich Bickner, because we can, and because he had something to say. Here's lust. Lust is the ape that chatters in our loins, like that. Tame him as we will by day. He rages all the wilder in our dreams by night. Just when we think we're safe from him, he raises up his ugly head and smirks, and there's no river in the world flows cold and strong enough to strike him down. Almighty God! Why dost thou deck men out with such a loathsome toy? Okay. <laughs> I told you it was going to be memorable. Um, what an evocative image. Let me, let me take that long paragraph maybe though and try to distill it down into one word that is a modern term. I think it works. It's that lust is another word for objectify. And objectify is no more than Taking someone in their fullness, their mind, their body, their soul, their background, their history, their parentage, their dreams, their fears, their sorrows, taking all of that, the according of it, and flattening it. Flattening it into this two-dimensional thing 
that is nothing more than their characteristics and your self-absorbed fantasies. That's objectifying. It's, 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 it's purposely taking the comprehensiveness and wondrousness, their fullness and everything, and flattening it into something that barely resembles them. That's objectifying. It is reducing them in that way. And whereas it is common instinctually to think that, that lust, that objectification, and adultery are like miles apart, Jesus is saying they actually occupy the same space because they are both guilty of forgetting those two data points we've already covered. They are both falling into the ditch of forgetting that you have a special status by virtue of the image in which you are created, but also you are forgetting the special status of what happens when a husband and wife come together in marriage. Those two things go together. And, and therefore that means that whether it's a person in physical space or a person in digital space, that's what's at work. That's what's in play. As much as we want to mitigate it and say it's only personal, it's just happening to me, that's, that's where it is. And look, um, wow, <laughs> Jesus, that's really kind of a high bar. I mean, Bridget Phetasy says, I'm, I'm sorry I set such a low bar for myself, but for Jesus to say what he did, that's almost like a high bar is to be impossible, and we all fail. I do too. But before we close out this part about what's behind it, we've we got to consider one other voice, uh, another single person's voice, and that would be Paul's voice. And you heard it read by Amanda in our New Testament reading in 1 Corinthians 6. What do we learn from that passage, which I know goes very quickly. One, listen to what verse 13 says. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord. And here's the key thing. And the Lord for the body. What does that teach us? Yeah, okay, fine. What am I to do and not to do? That's one thing. But here's the bigger point. The Lord has a claim on your body as much as he does on your soul. We... Again, we, 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 we so easily are tempted to think of the Gnostic way of thinking that the spirit is good, the body is bad, no one really cares about what the body does, it's all about your inner being. And Paul says, wrong. The fullness of who you are includes the body in which you, inhere, in which you exist. And the Lord has a claim on your system, on your body. And you can't ever diminish that and think, well, that's just, this, is, this is mine, and he can have the other part. Sorry. But what's the other thing we hear that, again, goes very quickly? It's what you hear in verse 18. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. The sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And Paul is suggesting that there is a different kind of category for the way we think about transgressions of our body in this way, that there's a lot of stuff that we do that is like, a, it's an offense to others and, and, it, and, it, and it harms and, 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 and warps somebody else. But in this one, like, you're doing something to yourself. Um, kids, um, maybe there's somebody on your street like a, a, a grumpy old man, which, wait a minute, I'm a grumpy old man. Okay, how about a, how about a grumpier older man, right, who, right, who you walk on their yard and they 
come out on their porch and get off my lawn, right? Um, maybe not like Oscar the Grouch, but they get off my lawn. And uh, maybe you're tempted to like, uh, he goes back inside and you get off the property and then you, do, you, you double back and you grab a rock and you want to throw it through his window, right? I'm not recommending that. Imagine if you picked up a rock and threw it at your own window at your own house. Um, imagine if you went to Ingalls and bought a dozen eggs and began to egg the window of your room. Or let's up the ante a little bit. Let's imagine that you just set fire to your bedroom. That sounds nuts to you, right? Who would do that unless something is not connecting within? That's exactly what Paul's reaching for. That where we go with this command is if you forget the seventh, you are setting your house and somebody else is on fire. That's what he's reaching for. And that are the, the truths behind the commandment. And so if I might just recap, what, what is the second point here? What are, what, are, what are we learning from the witness of the scripture when it comes to understanding the seventh commandment? One, that you have a special status by virtue of being made in the image of God and then you, you enter into one flesh um, arrangement with somebody with whom you marry. That, that lust and adultery um, are, forgive me, bedfellows, um, that they share a certain space that is more common than different. And that the Lord has such a claim on our bodies that to sin in this way is to actually be a counterproductive, self-defeating, self-warping act. And we hear all that, and we think, uh, I'm sorry, that all sounds wonderful. But like the dude in Cider House Rules, whoever made those rules isn't from here. And you may think that, and we may look at that and go, that's a wonderful ideal to aspire to, but give me a break. And you know, I'm the first person to say, yep, I fail at these. And I'm not just saying that hypothetically. We all do. But I don't want you to miss the context in which those truths that undergird the seventh commandment are spoken in. Because in that same paragraph, I hope that you noticed that Paul was addressing a particular kind of people. He was addressing a particular kind of people that were not simply looking at Jesus like, he's my life coach, what a great ethicist he is. Who was he speaking to? The ones who, it says, are members of Christ's own body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? That you belong to him? And not only do you belong to him, but you are a temple of God's spirit. And his spirit dwells within you. Not only are you made in the image of God, he's actually chosen to take up residence with you, whatever that means, in some deep and profound and inextricable way. And not, o- not only did he raise Jesus from the dead, he will also raise your bodies. And why is that true of those to whom Paul is speaking in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20? Because of what he says in verse 19. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. This is the gospel the one who came to, forgive me, flesh out the depths of the seventh commandment 
is the one who came to forgive us our every failure of its intention. But at the same time, try to renew us inwardly that we might come to see him as he sees us and see all things as he sees them. This is the gospel. This is what he has done. There's a great deal of wisdom that we've already heard in how we think about our bodies. And we certainly hear that wisdom articulated and underscored by Jesus again. But when we remember who is the voice that is speaking this wisdom, it is the voice who has died for you and has died for me to offer us the grace. The grace of forgiveness, the grace of renewal. Where do we go with it? What do we take from here? What's the point? If it's true, like Bruce Marshall said, that every time a man goes to a brothel, he's on a search for God, then any thinking about our loins has to begin with a thinking about the Lord. Or as a friend put it recently, before you talk about trying to repair a marriage, you've got to think first about your first marriage, the one that Jesus has come to betroth him to you in love. There is no forwardness without that. And so I said at the beginning of the sermon, the seventh commandment is a do not, but there's an implied do in the seventh commandment. And that implied do is what you find in Hebrews 13.4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be kept pure. And that applies to married people and to single people. How do you do that? What, what brief takeaways might we take from it? You may have missed it, but last Wednesday was an anniversary. Uh, on Wednesday, August 24th, was the 1,612th anniversary of the sacking of Rome. I know, how did it slip my mind? <laughs> uh, God, right? Um, and I know, there were those of you that had a party with the, you know, the Chianti and a round of fire as you listened to fiddling music. Why didn't I get an invite? But on August 24th, 410, Alaric, one of the Visigoths, came over and took over Rome. Now, Rome was already no longer the capital of, Italy, of the Roman Empire, but it was the centerpiece. It was the you know, the crown jewel, and Alaric comes in, and I think I have a painting of that, there it is, um, from Thomas Cole, and that's the sacking of Rome. Now, the thing about the sacking of Rome is that it, it wasn't kind of like, how'd this happen? Like, Alaric had made two other attempts to overrun Rome over the last several years, and every time the emperor of Rome at that time, Honorius, tried to negotiate with Alaric to avoid the standoff and avoid the sacking. First try, didn't work, let's negotiate. Second try, didn't work, negotiate. Third try, we're in, we've breached the walls, we've overtaken it. Why this little friendly trip, brief trip through history? Because I think that's a metaphor. I think it's a metaphor for thinking about whatever would undermine a relationship that you have or would warp the soul that you possess by virtue of the things that we've discussed. And we've already heard the words that I think is the instruction for us. 
If there is something on the horizon that is approaching you that you know will threaten, and look, uh, adultery just doesn't happen. Like, how did this happen? You, you saw it coming before you wanted to admit that it was. You saw it on the horizon, like, you, like, like Honoria saw Alaric approaching. And Paul's words for us, if you see it on the horizon but it's not here yet, is flee. Flee the immorality. Run. <laughs> Don't pause. Don't, hmm, let's reflect. Move. Distance. Flee. All right, well, what if, what if whatever would undermine a relationship or warp your own soul like it's close to the gate? What if, it, what if it starts to beat on the wall and looks like it's about to come over the wall? Um, Jesus' words in Matthew 5 were rather dramatic. Um, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Meaning, when it comes to what would afflict or impair or transgress or warp, um, there is no tapering off. There's no equivalent nicotine patch for this thing. It's a decisive blow, and that means you end, cancel, uh, remove, destroy, filter. Um, wh- whatever deliberate, decisive, dramatic act it is to avoid where this is going, there's no gradualism that fits. That's if you see it approaching from a distance, and that's if you see it banging on the wall and maybe even the first dude's getting over the wall. But what, what happens if it's gotten over the wall and now your house is on fire? Lord, help me. What if that's happened and the person that you've offended whose trust you violated They may not be obligated to say they can go no further with you, but they would be entitled. There are precious few things in the scripture that speaks of what would be the justification for saying, I can go no further with you, but this is one of them. And though it, to rally to the moment would to say, could we consider forgiveness and fighting for what we have here first? What happens if you're in that predicament James says to confess, to come out from the shadows, to begin to grieve and repent through no longer pretending. Frederick Bigner, he said this, um, we are our secrets. They are the essence of what makes us ourselves. If we are ever to be free and whole, we must be free from their darkness and have their spell over us broken. In the honesty, there is a freedom. Even though there is pain and work and grief and struggle. And that's wisdom. But no matter what might happen in the future, here is the gospel. There is wisdom for us and there is grace. You know, I, I read the last couple chapters of the Scarlet Letter again this week just to refresh my memory of high school. And if you know that story, Reverend Arthur Dimsdale is a minister who um, has an affair with a woman and they bring forth a child and her name is 
Pearl, and the, wife, the woman is Hester Prynne, and uh, Hester Prynne's estranged husband tries to bring revenge upon Dimsdale, the entirety of it. And the story is really not about adultery. In fact, that word never shows up in the entirety of the text. It's all about what are the consequences in the wake of that moment. And what we find in the course of the narrative is that Dimsdale, in his attempt to conceal or to maybe try to find it in some alternative way and run away from the community, um, all that did was confirm what Psalm says in Psalm 32, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Such that in the last chapter of the book, after the weight of what he has done has finally almost taken everything from him, he, he joins in the middle of the town and he walks up on the platform and he discloses to everybody what's happened. Now, okay, we might talk about the pastoral wisdom of that choice. But a confession was made. And the last thing he says before he dies is, God knows, and he is merciful. He hath proved his mercy most of all in my afflictions. Praise be his name, his will be done. There's pain, there's grief, there's work. And even if you're not in a relationship with somebody, there is learning to lose the taste for what you have come to enjoy. But there is mercy. That's what the gospel calls us to, and that's why we've got to come to the table. To, if you've been harmed, to remember how this works. And if you've been the one to harm, to remember how this works. Because, look, what is the table out to do? It's not just a, oh, look, bread and grape juice. Fantastic. He did tell us to eat this. What is this all about? Jesus has come to forgive us of all of our disordered loves and to somehow reshape them into the proper order that they deserve. What's a disordered love, kids? There's some stuff that you love that you love too much that's not worth what you give it. And there are some things that you and I don't love enough that's worth much more. And that's why C.S. Lewis says, our problem, our core problem, we are far too easily pleased. And somehow, through the love of Jesus, who has done for us what he did, to both forgive and renew to release us from our own imprisonment is to see our loves reordered again. That we might love what is worthy of that and not as much what isn't. This is his call. This is his promise. This is his mercy. This is his grace. This is his wisdom. And it's all for our bodies which he loves. Let's pray. Father, I would ask your assistance that whatever might have been heard, whatever folks might take away from here, that they would hear both the love in your wisdom and the love in your grace. And that if I have missed the right balance, that you would fill in the gaps and compensate for what I could not provide. That you would help us and protect us and preserve us and heal us and reorder our loves. That we might walk in a newness of life and be of hope to all. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.